I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Born in 1769, Napoleon Bonaparte, also known as Napoleon I, was a French military leader and emperor who conquered much of Europe in the early 19th century. Born on the island of Corsica, Napoleon rapidly rose to the ranks of the military during the French Revolution, which lasted from 1789 to 1799. After seizing political power in France in a 1799 coup d'etat, he crowned himself emperor in 1804. Shrewd, ambitious, and a skilled military strategist, Napoleon successfully waged war against various coalitions of European nations and expanded his empire. However, after a disastrous French invasion of Russia in 1812, Napoleon abdicated the throne two years later and was exiled to the island of Elba. In 1815, he briefly returned to power in his Hundred Days campaign. After a crushing defeat at the Battle of Waterloo, he abdicated once again and was exiled to the remote island of St. Helena, where he died at 51 in 1821. In addition to Napoleon Bonaparte's extensive influence on Western history, has been an imposing presence in the history of film. As early as 1897, the Lumiere brothers produced the first recorded film depicting an incident from the life of Napoleon. It was an interview between Napoleon and the Pope. Since then, more than 200 actors have played the part of Napoleon in film and on television. A few notable films of the bunch are Abel Gantz's Napoleon in 1927, Henry Coster's Desire in 1954, and the Russian film series War and Peace in 1966 all of which Stanley Kubrick, who was fascinated by Napoleon, was unimpressed by. And he himself was planning to do his own Napoleon movie, which he planned on being his greatest film to date. Famed filmmaker Stanley Kubrick was born in New York City on July 26, 1928, and he grew up in the Bronx, New York, where his father Jacques Kubrick worked as a doctor and his mother Sadie, a housewife. Kubrick never took to the classroom, and elementary school his attendance record was evenly split between days absent and present. In high school, he was a social outcast and the prototypical underachiever, ranking at the bottom of his class despite his intelligence. I never learned anything at school, and I never read a book for pleasure until I was 19, he once said. Kubrick displayed the early promise as a photographer for the school paper, and at age 16 began selling his photos to Look magazine. A year later, he was hired for the staff of the magazine. When not traveling for Look, he spent most of his evenings at the Museum of Modern Art. Toward the end of his high school career, Kubrick applied to several colleges, but was turned down for admission by all of them. Kubrick began to explore the art of filmmaking in the 1950s. His first films were documentary shorts financed by friends and relatives. His first feature, the 1953 military drama Fear and Desire, was made independently of a studio, an uncommon practice for that time. Early into his filmmaking career, Kubrick acted as a cinematographer, editor, and soundman, in addition to directing. Later, he would also write and produce. Kubrick made 10 films between 1957 and 1999. His early releases from the period included the acclaimed Spartacus, 1960, Lolita, 1962, based on the novel by Vladimir Novikov, and Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, 1964. Kubrick released his most popular film, 2001 Space Odyssey, in 1968, after working diligently on the production for a number of years. From co-writing the script with Arthur C. Clarke to working on the special effects to directing, the film earned Kubrick 13 Academy Award nominations. He won one for his special effects work. It was released to a wide success and stayed in theaters for four years. 
He was at the peak of his powers and ready to make an even bigger film. It was while he was completing his science fiction masterpiece that he decided his next subject would be, in his words, one of those rare men who move history and mold the destiny of their own times and of generations to come. His next film would be a biopic on Napoleon Bonaparte. The dramatic rise and fall of the French emperor made for a great story, but it was his mind that most interested Kubrick, who couldn't grasp how a brilliant tactician could fall victim to his own irrational temptations. The director envisioned both a sweeping epic and intimate character study. He sent dozens of assistants and an Oxford Napoleon specialist all over Europe on Napoleon's trail and embarked on two years of intensive research. Together they amassed thousands of location scouting photographs and still more slides of Napoleonic imagery. No stone was left unturned in Kubrick's obsessive quest to uncover every piece of information history had to offer about the French Revolutionary. One of those researchers was his brother-in-law and longtime executive producer, Jan Harlan. I was in Zurich in 1968 and 1969, looking for relevant material, books, and drawing simply everything I could find on the period from the French Revolution until the Congress of Vienna in 1815. Other people traveled for weeks through Germany, France, and the UK on the same mission. No detail was too small to fascinate Kubrick, whether it was the color of the soil in a battlefield to the shape of a nail in a horseshoe. He loved research and study, says Harlan. Pre-production and editing were his joy, filming itself a necessity. He read hundreds of books on the man, broke the information down into categories on everything from his food taste to the weather on the day of a specific battle, gathered together 15,000 location photos and 17,000 slides of Napoleonic imagery, which pretty much defines the concept of obsession. Kubrick was absolutely obsessed with Napoleon. At dinner during pre-production on A Clockwork Orange, Malcolm McDowell asked him why he was eating ice cream at the same time as his steak. What's the difference, said Kubrick. It's all food. This is how Napoleon used to eat. Napoleon, the film, he tried and failed to make for decades, is perhaps the best example of his notoriously meticulous attention to detail. He believed nobody had ever made a great historical film and planned to change this with a three-hour epic telling the story of the French emperor's entire life. It comes as no surprise then that to Kubrick, Napoleon Bonaparte was the most interesting human throughout the past 200,000 years or so that we've been on this earth. He called Bonaparte's life an epic poem of action. Thought his relationship with Josephine was one of the great obsessional passions of all time. Kubrick may have seen some parallels between his life and the Corsican general. Both were detail-oriented geniuses obsessed with logistics and both invented new systems to organize and deliver information and supplies in the most efficient manner possible. He had the system figured out so that you could search any of the 50 principal characters and find out what they were doing on any given date in history. Kubrick invented a whole new system of cataloging information, which he used on all of his subsequent pictures. In 1969, Kubrick crammed his research and study into a 148-page screenplay. As Harlan observes, Stanley's scripts were often very different from the final film, but it's clear that the biopic wouldn't have just confined itself to one part of Napoleon's life. Instead, it would follow him from his birth in Corsica in 1769 to his death on the remote island of St. Helena in 1821. Its emphasis would be on the battles Kubrick called vast, lethal ballets as well as Napoleon's love for Josephine. The script has an amazing pace. It moves us along Napoleon's life with pinpointed moments that reveal so much about the man, but also are just flat out entertaining and engaging. 
like a series of really quick glimpses into psychology at every age. Not to mention, it had a touch of Kubrick's signature humor. It has an interesting structure that has a narrator, much like Barry Lyndon, and then there is also a voiceover from Napoleon, much like narration of Kubrick's other characters, like in A Clockwork Orange. The two voiceovers bounce in and out accordingly. Oftentimes, Napoleon's voiceover, or his actual letters, are read and contradict the information we see on screen, which is the best way to use voiceover in cinema. He captures the shy but confident man as well, and the pain of standing out because of one's intelligence. He also shows Napoleon coming into the noble world of sex shows and dinner parties. In an early scene, the young and provincial uh, Napoleon is scandalized by a live Parisian sex show staged for the new upper classes, a tableau that wouldn't have been out of place and eyes wide shut. The script contains some fantastic battle scenes as well, which would have required tens of thousands of extras. The closest he would get to Napoleon-sized battles would be in 1975's Barry Lyndon, and then he'd be dealing with far fewer extras than he wanted. Although the battles would have been epic, his interest was in the psychology, but also in the planning and strategy of this great military leader. His script truly captures his obsession for Napoleon, and we get it. He paints a fascinating portrait of an average man from humble beginnings, literally trying to take over the world with his ambition and nearly accomplishing it. At the end of the script, he has his memo, which is really uh, very detailed notes about how to make the movie. He had everything figured out in extraordinary detail, from the length being 180 minutes to the amount of shooting days, 150 days. But he figured out every possible way to cut the budget down. He knew that extras, military uniforms, and movie stars would be a big part of the budget, which is normal for a spectacle film. But he had figured out genius ways to cut those costs down as much as possible. Napoleon would have been so huge, it would have required entire armies, and he was not above working with Eastern Bloc nations if they would pony up. We have received bids from Romania to provide up to a maximum of 30,000 troops at $2 per man, though it is unlikely that we will ever exceed 15,000 men on the largest days. He also had Yugoslavia lined up to provide the same numbers at $5 per soldier. I wouldn't want to fake it with fewer troops, he said in an interview. Because Napoleonic battles were out in the open, a vast tableau where the formations moved in an almost choreographic fashion. I want to capture this reality on film, and to do so it's necessary to recreate all the conditions of the battle with painstaking accuracy. He would solve the problem of costumes by using special paper uniforms. He goes on, a New York firm who can produce a printed uniform on DuPont fireproof drip-dry paper fabric, which has a 300-pound breaking strength, even when wet, for $1 to $4 depending on the detail. This would be necessary considering the numerous battle scenes and Kubrick's penchant for maintaining a certain level of control and getting as many takes as he felt necessary to achieve what he wanted. Along with shooting at a number of authentic palaces and villas available for shooting in France and Italy, Kubrick wanted to save money on sets by renting on the cheap and using the front projection techniques he developed during the filming of 2001 A Space Odyssey. In the cast section of the memo, he goes into detail on how he thinks casting no-names is the way to go as to free up a good portion of the budget. He did end up having plans to cast David Hemmings and Audrey Hepburn as the lead roles, and Alec Guinness and Laurence Olivier as supporting characters. Later, he had taken to the idea of Jack Nicholson being Napoleon. In his memo, he went on to list all the work he'd already done on the pre-production of the film. And it's a long list and incredibly thorough, listing team members like costume designer David Walker. He also goes into detail on a system of information and how you can search 
any of the 50 principal characters and find out what they were doing on any given date you decide. Then he talks of his plan to shoot with an extremely fast lens, one that he can capture beautiful interiors with just sunlight from the window or candles. He really wanted to immerse the viewer in that time period and have it look accurate as possible. One of the reasons he probably felt that a great historical film had never been done is because no one had ever done this. Everything was ready, everything was planned, and it was a surefire masterpiece from one of the greatest directors of all time. However, the film's backers, first MGM and then United Artists, deemed it too risky an undertaking, and the project eventually fell apart. It's truly unfortunate because his brother-in-law, Harlan, believes that it would have been the perfect vehicle for Kubrick's preoccupations. Self-destructive actions by intelligent people, the poison of jealousy and revenge, the ways that brilliance, success, and power can go hand-in-hand with egocentricity, vanity, and the abuse of such power. These were the themes that always interested him. Just think of Lolita, Passive Glory, and Dr. Strangelove. Kubrick's timing was unlucky. Metro-Goldwyn-Mare had just changed hands, and its new owners were more intent on building casinos than funding monumental historical dramas with 50,000 military extras. Meanwhile, the arrival of Dino De Laurenti's own Napoleonic epic, Waterloo, 1970, offered no encouragement. Kubrick was finally facing his own Waterloo in more ways than one. It was a sad end to two years of total dedication, but it didn't slow Kubrick down. Having flirted with an adaptation of Arthur Schnitzler's 1926 novella, Tram Novelle, which became Eyes Wide Shut three decades later, he went on to make A Clockwork Orange. In the circumstances, it is almost incredible that it was released only three years after 2001 Space Odyssey. Kubrick put Napoleon on the back burner, but kept moving. Most of his research wound up in his next film, Barry Lyndon, which takes place just a few years before the Napoleonic Wars took place. Many of his innovative ideas about period dramas wound up in the film. Using the ultra-fast 50mm lens that he had originally planned to use for Napoleon, scenes could be lit with no more than candles, oil lamps, and sunshine. It may not have been Napoleon, but perhaps it was the great historical film that no one else had managed. Kubrick's interest in Napoleon continued throughout the rest of his life, but the budget required to do the film the way he wanted was never realistic. In the early 1980s, he still talked of wanting to make the film, but it wasn't to be. When Kubrick spoke about Napoleon in a rare interview with Michael Cement prior to the release of The Shining, he said, Napoleon himself once remarked what a great novel his life would be. I'm sure he would have said movie if he had known about that. His entire life is the story, and it works perfectly well in the order that it happened. It would also be nice to do it as a 20-hour TV series, but there is, as yet, not enough money available on TV to properly budget such a venture. Of course, there is the tremendous problem of the actor to play Napoleon, Al Pacino comes to mind, and there is always the possibility of shooting the 20 episodes in such a way that he would be 50 by the time he got to St. Helena. Al, I'm joking, man, I'm joking. After his death in 1999, it was reportedly offered to Ridley Scott and Ang Lee before eventually landing, it seems, with Spielberg. Spielberg famously took over production of AI after Kubrick's death in 1999. And indeed, television has changed so radically in recent years in terms of the expense and scope of its output that Kubrick's friend Steven Spielberg has talked about producing a miniseries based on the Napoleon script. In 2013, Baz Luhrmann was mentioned as a potential director, and Kerry Fukunaga, whom directed the latest Bond movie, has since been touted. TV now is technically incredible, and a series of many hours and chapters is the ideal format for Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon. 
Maybe now Kubrick's Napoleon will finally be realized, of course in a completely different form from the one he imagined. Kubrick was truly the Napoleon of filmmaking, and it's no secret every director is just making a movie about themselves, so it's safe to say it would have been one of his greatest. That being said, Kubrick's own failure to make this movie drove him in a bitter, more critical direction. And we got other masterpieces, like A Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon, which we may not have gotten had he made his dream movie. And I'm not sure I'd want to lose those movies. So it seems that we must embrace the failures in our lives and truly move forward, stopping only briefly to feel the sting of it. But after that, we move on to the next thing, which could end up being our true masterpiece after all. <laughs>